Hey everybody, thanks for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Network's Out Front with AJ and Nick. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Gmail, Network at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook on our page there, Chicago Podcast Network. And most importantly, you can support the show by downloading and subscribing to this podcast and all Chicago Podcast Network podcasts through iTunes, Android, and any other device that you use. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, everybody. And here we go. AJ, say hi to the people. Hey, people. So, what we're going to do today, because it's Halloween, is just count down our top ten uh, Halloween scary movies and kind of have fun with it. AJ's got a dog in the background that will disagree with him occasionally, and we will deal with it as we must. So, we're going to go through, go through the top ten, we'll do it in chronological order, but I wanted to get some movies out of the way for myself. AJ's got a few that didn't make his top ten. Uh, if I mention one, and we haven't told each other's each other's list, so if anything crosses over... You know, if I mention a movie that you've got on your list, higher or lower, we'll debate why where it's at. All right? Okay. All right. Here are my honorable mentions. These are the movies that did not make my top ten. The Omen, which I do love. It's a great movie. It's got all sorts of Catholic dogma that I've always enjoyed. Psycho is not in my top ten, but I give it honorable mention. Jaws is there. Now, Jaws I would put as a top ten scary movie, but I don't think of it as a Halloween movie. I think of it as a 4th of July movie. So I don't give it a Halloween top 10 mention. And then finally, it's a two-part answer. It's kind of a cop-out. But I've always thought Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are essentially one story. So I put them together in my top, in my honorable mention. Who you got in your honorable mentions, AJ? Well, I'm just kind of pondering about this. I mean, it was just in no particular order. Beetlejuice okay. is one. Especially when you're like, you know, when we were younger, you know, and that was kind of like a different film, you know, for Tim Burton and everything. Right. So there's that. There's a movie that you saw. This was an 87 movie, um, Monster Squad. Do you remember that? I, uh, you know, it's funny. I've never seen Monster Squad. It's one of those movies that popped up on Netflix uh, that I just never seen. I never got around to it. Never. Do you know what the premise of it is? No, I never. It's a movie I'd never heard of until I saw the poster on uh, Netflix. So essentially, it's like <laughs> it's a teen movie, but it's like these teens, and their town is being terrorized by Dracula, Frankenstein, werewolf, the mummy, and um, the creature from the Black Lagoon type of thing. Are they like the Universal movies version of those monsters? Yeah, it's like, you know, the, the stereotypical Dracula with the outfit, stereotypical Frankenstein, stereotypical werewolf, um, the mummy, obviously, in mummy wraps, and then the creature from Black Lagoon was kind of like some amphibious man, humanoid type of thing. So each of these kids are trying to figure out why are they in their town and how do you get rid of them by going to the library and learning about, oh, the silver bullet, oh... <laughs> All this, you know, and you're trying to get rid of Dracula because Dracula is the kingpin 
of these monsters, you know. So it's kind of like this thing that we, this imaginary thing that we have that Dracula is like the end all be all monster, and all of his henchmen, if it were, what is Frankenstein, werewolf, mummy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, we'll get back to that actually a little bit later then, because I have a movie in my list that kind of does the same thing. But we'll get into that a little bit later because it's pretty high up on my list. Uh, anybody else in your honorable mentions? You know, it, Misery. Okay. The Birds. Okay. Um, we both have Hitchcock in our honorables. I know. And, I mean, I guess for my honorable mentions, not because they were scary, because these are, like, entertaining. In, in fact, from 10 through 7, I'm like, they're scary, but I keep... I find myself watching them over again. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. There's there's a thing with my list where you'll actually notice that most of my horror movies, you could argue, aren't even really horror movies. They're just in that genre. That's the thing. It's like Beetlejuice. I don't consider that as a horror movie. But, no. You know, it's it scary as a, for a kid it is. Right. But then if you watch the cartoon version. I love that cartoon. Movie, oh, right? I love that cartoon. Um, but yeah, Hitchcock. Um was different. I mean, it was scary, obviously. It was different, um, you know, through cinematography. It's, 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 it's interesting. I guess the right behind Misery and Birds, um, it's a very short film. It's called The Telltale Heart. It's pretty much was Edgar Allan Poe's poem, Telltale Heart. It was a very black and white short film of it. And I remember one in lit class, literature class in high school. Is that school. the Vincent Price one? Yes. Yeah, I love me some Vincent Price. So, I mean, you can't talk about horror films without talking about Vince Price also. Right, and, and I'm, none of his movies are in my top ten, but I'm glad we got to mention. For those of you out there who maybe are younger and the name Vincent Price doesn't mean anything to you, try to not be a modern douchebag. Go back and watch a black and white Vincent Price movie. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying, though, AJ. A lot yeah. of people our age, like you, you tell them watch a black and white movie, they instantly say no. And Vincent Price is... Without a doubt, one of the best horror actors you will ever see. Let me ask you this. I mean, before we get to our top ten, would you ever equate horror films with quote-unquote filth films? In other words, John Water comes to mind. Oh, so you're saying like uh, any of his kind of stuff, the... Well, there's the, I mean, if you're talking about the John Waters uh, body horror stuff, I would say yes. I'm saying like Pink Flamingos. Yeah, maybe. You know what I'm saying? Like, to me, though, that kind of goes into the realm of kink more than right. horror. Does that make sense? Yeah, because, I mean, even... I mean, John Waters' films are all very sexual. Pink Flamingos, it was, like, scary because it's divine. You, who, you don't know who it was. <laughs> right. And actually really eating dog shit. It's yeah. like, uh... <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't personally put those into the horror realm, but, you know, what scares people is what scares people. If it, if it actually terrifies you, fine. Like, I mean, if you're going to go that route, though, then you could argue that movies like Kids is a horror movie, right? I, I guess, I mean, I, we should have prefaced about all-time horror list because, you know, scared for me is probably scared different from you. Yeah, well, no, and, and the thing is, though, is that when I say... To me, I've always said when you say a horror movie, it means different things to different people, but it doesn't necessarily mean scary. To me, horror means supernatural. I don't find mm. most stalker movies to be uh, horror. Like uh, the movies like the, the Hills Have Eyes, 
I don't think that that's. Uh, I think that that's just gore. I don't think gore means horror. I think gore is gore. I don't like uh, like Last House on the Left. I don't think that that's a horror movie. It's a thriller, but it's not a horror movie. Last House on the Left is 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 a revenge film, right? So to me, that's always been a little bit different. But as I've gotten older, you know, I I just find that I like a supernatural bend to my horror films. So. All right. All right. Why don't you do me? Do you want? How you want to do this? You want to go first? You want me to go first? I'll go first. All right. What's your number ten? I'm gonna be writing these down as you go. Bella, the Bram Stoker, Francis Ford Coppola, or uh, Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. Ah, very good. I love those ones. Uh, He pops up on my list a little bit later too. But the Bella Lugosi Dracula. My mother uh, raised me on that movie. She her favorite scene in a horror movie is when he does the cob here and he like does that that hand motion points down at the seat like i've his performance as dracula is such a bizarre thing because i wouldn't call it scary maybe at the time it was but as i saw it you know in the 80s i never thought of it as scary but i thought of it as filled with a respect for the character do you understand what i'm saying yeah um again as i said before in my honorable mention that, you know, 10 through 7 for me, these are films I thought they were scary, but entertained at the same time. And, Dra- and Bela Lugosi's Dracula was scary, but I find myself keep watching it over and over again. Because that's almost like the baseline of what all Dracula movies ought to be. Alright, my number 10 is one of two movies on my list that were made after the year 1999. I only have two movies on my list. That were made after the year two thousand. That were made after the year two thousand. So the first one on my list is just because I've seen it within the last five years, and it actually got me while I was watching it to be afraid. And that is the movie Insidious. Ooh, yeah. I know that it seems newer, but it's one of those. It's not often that I watch a scary movie, and I'm actually afraid while watching it, and that it sits with me after I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Insidious sat with me for a while. And for a couple of days afterwards, when I'd close my eyes at night, I would see that red demon face from the movie. <laughs> and, I mean, it was. It was a good, it was a good scary movie. It really got me. And I loved, the part of the reason I loved it is it did the one thing that I've always complained about with, especially modern horror movies, which is, typically speaking, a horror movie in today's world goes like this. A man has a job. The wife stays at home with the kids. The wife begins to notice weird things around the house. The man, the husband, will say, well, we can't leave because we just bought this house, and I'm not going to go just because you're a little freaked out, and begins to assume that the wife has mental problems, right? Mm -hmm. Insidious has my favorite scene of modern horror where the dad walks into the house, there's clearly been some evil shit going on, and the husband goes, she goes, we need to get out of this house, and he looks at her and goes, all right. No problem. And they literally pack up their stuff and they move the hell out of the house. And to me, I was just one of those moments I was like, yes, that is a normal reaction to living in a house where you're seeing ghosts. Get up and get the fuck out. But I, I, I thought Insidious was one of the good ones. What's your number nine? Eraserhead. Of course your ass puts in a David Lynch movie. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, 
All right, I'll give you it. I mean, it, 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 it's your list. I'm not going to, like, sit there, but I will. I have a problem with it. Why? It's just, it's one of those. Okay, so David Lynch, to me, is one of those guys who, even Twin Peaks, it's weird for weirdness sake. Like, like Tim Burton does that a lot. The, I'm just going to be weird and do things in a different way, so here we go. And, like, that's how I feel about a lot of, like, Eraserhead. Even a lot of Cronenberg, I feel the same way. Like, we're just being weird to be weird. But what about that movie uh, is it that you love so much? Which one? Eraserhead. Oh, what about it? Yeah, what do you like about it? <sighs> When I first saw Eraserhead, it was like this surreal movie. I mean, it's, I call that pretty much art film at that point. And there was, there was a lot of things of, to that that made me, like, gotten weird about it, but also, like, scared of these images. And I can remember, like, even watch, after watching it, all these images were in my head. Of certain things. You know, you know? I, it's interesting. Um, I wonder how much of horror movies really are about what sticks with you after you watch it. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, so along with Eraserhead, it's not on my list, but like the movie Clockwork Orange. You know, I read the book, then you see the film. And again, it's that art film component to it. So, I mean, when, you, when, when I talk about Clockwork Orange to someone, they automatically know the scene I'm referring to. With a guy sitting in the chair with his eyes <laughs> pulled back, you know? Is and everyone, everyone resonates with that image, you know? It's just like a razor head. It's like the character with the, you know, um, hair and the light in the background. Like people, when I say a razor head, they, they go right to that image. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, it, it, it's good that you mentioned that, though, because I, iconic look plays a major part in a lot of horror films. And mm-hmm. as you kind of go through it, it the, there are movies that are almost exactly the same that even came out originally, like, before the iconic versions of characters that we think of. You know, Sleepaway Camp is Friday the 13th. It's the same movie, but they right. didn't have the iconic villain in the second, like, and we can get into Friday the 13th, and, and we will, trust me, because two Jason movies appear on my list. But as they create these monsters with these looks they become their own thing and Eraserhead you're right does have very striking cinematography and very cool makeup design I just you know it was one of those ones I never got very much into it but I'm glad that you did because it, it, it's and that you kind of explained a little bit because it's one of those movies that always pops up on you know I bet when we end this I'm going to go through the top 10 of horror movies on Rotten Tomatoes that we'll pick apart and destroy because a lot of them are that art house thing that you're talking about, but a lot of it comes from just the striking imagery that they are able to, to do. You want to get I my love your reaction? You're like, like, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, you're a socialist who who is out <laughs> as activism. You're liberal as hell, so of course you like a David Lynch movie. That'd be like people being like me saying that my favorite, you know, action movie of all time is Die Hard. And it's like, of course it's Die Hard. You're basically want to be John McClane. You know, it's just one of those things. My number nine, and it's all the way down at number nine, and I, I'm actually surprised it even made the top ten for me, but I had to put it in there because I do watch it every year, even though it is my least favorite of the big three, is Halloween. Really? Halloween is my number nine. I don't think that Michael Myers is as interesting a character as Jason or Freddy, 
Uh, I think that the first movie, though, you cannot sell short what it has done for modern horror. You just can't. And it deserves a spot on everybody's list. What, you don't even have it on your list? No. Really? No. The first Halloween? No. Wow. Right, well, Again, I mean, this is, I mean, this goes back to what I said, you know, what, how we define scary and everything. And, you, you know, you talked about how yours has a little bit more of a supernatural bent to it, whereas where you're going to hear from me is some of that, but also going back to what I said, these, like, iconic scenes or iconic lines or iconic characters um, that are associated with these film projects. Well, I, I, I just, I, I've always felt that Michael Myers, the, look, first of all, he's got one of the best kills in that movie of all time in a horror film, which is when he stabs the dude with the knife into the door and right. just leaves him pegged on the door, is, is to me one of the great moments in horror film history. Now, the reason I don't have it higher, again, I don't find Michael Myers to be the most interesting of the big three, and as time's gone on, I kind of fall away from that movie, and I don't think it holds up as well as the first Nightmare or the first Friday the 13th. But yeah. I do love Donald Pleasance's role as uh, the doctor from the mental institution, Dr. Loomis. He's fantastic in, I think, the first five Halloween movies, not including Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which has no oh. Michael Myers. Okay. Uh, what's your number eight? I don't know if you ever saw this film. It was a 1978 film in black and white. Narasatal, The Phantom of Dunok. No, do not know that one. That's one. That's the very first Dracula movie. You talking about Nosferatu? Yeah, Nosferatu is from like the 1920s. Are you talking about a remake of it? Well, there's a movie of it of 19. There was a 1978. Okay, because so Nos- a remake of it. But well, yeah, I'm talking about the 1920s film okay. of it. Yeah, the 1920s is a silent film. Correct. Yeah, Nosferatu is, if people haven't seen Nosferatu, as much as it's a silent film and it goes against your desire to watch something new, Nosferatu is creepy. The, the, either, as I understand it, that dude's not even wearing makeup, if I'm correct. Well, that's the thing. Um, he's not wearing makeup, but he, there's actual, they constructed his face, but his face is a little bit natural. Right. And because it, there's even a... What, there's a movie this coming out next year that William Defoe was in that talks about that movie, but how this fictitious thing of, like, you know, this guy's really a creature. No, that movie already came out. It's an HBO so film. So it did come out. Okay. Yeah, it's an and HBO movie about the, about the making of Nosferatu. Yes. And in the, 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 in the movie you're talking about, the, it's, it's him and Malkovich. And yes. as they go through the movie, you start to get the idea... That I think I think Malkovich plays the guy who plays Nosferatu, and as the movie goes on, it's basically implied that he was really a vampire, and he was Correct. really on set feeding on the people. So that is actually a great thing. But the original Nosferatu, that dude is just creepy looking. That guy will will haunt. I remember watching that movie my freshman year of college in film class. We watched it, and I, I just remember going like, "This is the creepiest damn thing." And the fact that it's silent actually makes it creepier. That and some of the cinematographer too, where you know all of a sudden he just appears there, in the scene. Yeah, there are people who argue that a lot of the tricks that Orson Welles 
you know, very famously used to make Citizen Kane the greatest movie of all time, that he stole a lot of them from Nosferatu, like the low camera angles, looking up and all that, which, you know, hadn't been invented yet. A lot of that is initially in Nosferatu. I mean, that, what D.W. Griffith's done in in film, what Orson Welles has done, all those cats just, if you go back to early... American film um, has really set the bar of what all of what we're talking about kind of makes horror films and film in itself what it is today, I feel. All right, so we're going to go from your very classic, very, very nice, very educated pick (laughs) of Nosferatu to my number eight. Are you ready? It's probably quite opposite. Friday the 13th, number seven, Jason Takes Manhattan. Really? Of all the Jason films? Oh, yes. Number seven. Yep, Jason Takes Manhattan. Which is the worst film ever. It is definitely the worst of that franchise. Actually, that's not true. The worst of that that franchise is Jason number... Was it one, two, three, four? Jason 4 is the worst of them. Jason 4 has the worst beginning to any horror movie ever. The hero from the previous movie... Jason has been defeated at the end of Jason. I'm, I'm pretty sure I got my timeline right. Jason is defeated at the end of Jason 3. Jason dies. Yeah. Jason 4 is titled Jason Lives. When Jason is reborn, the plot is two men pull up in a pickup truck to the graveyard where Jason Voorhees is buried. And the character from the previous film goes, we have to dig him up. And his buddy goes, why? And his friend goes, to make sure that he's really dead. They then dig up the body... He's clearly still dead. Then they stick a spike into his heart, which is then struck by lightning, which which wakes Jason up to have him start killing for the remainder of the movie series. They bring in their own deaths. It makes no sense. But that is not on my list. Jason 7 is on my list. But see, that's what I have a problem with, even Jason 7, 4 through 7. Because you know, you know in your heart of hearts, that film, Jason 4, was like, okay, this is clearly a franchise, and this is now becoming stupid. Yeah, if, if, that's, if that's your issue, you're going to hate a lot of my list. Especially Jason's mom. Come well, on now. Okay, but whatever. That's no, the f- there's no whatever. Jason, you know, that was like, that was the end of Jason for me. It's like, really? We have to go to his mother? I said, we're done. Same way with Freddy Krueger. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> uh, that's going to be interesting as this list goes on then. Oh, uh, yeah, I bet. All right. Well, no, but here's my thing, man. I love Jason Takes Manhattan because it's just such a ridiculous idea. It's such a ridiculous idea. Like, okay, we're going to take this killer who, in the setting of this camp, it kind of works. And what are we going to do? We're going to screw up this entire movie and put him in Manhattan. And the best thing about that movie, by the way, is that... 90% of it does not take place in Manhattan. It takes place on a boat that it's Camp Crystal Lake, right? And most lakes are pretty isolated from large bodies of water. And the movie starts off with a high school loading a boat at Camp Crystal Lake, who then take this boat out of the lake down a river to New York City, with Jason killing people on the boat on the way there. It does involve one of my favorite Jason kills, though, which is when the the young African-American kid from the school is alone on a rooftop. 
He's a Golden Gloves boxer, so he decides to box Jason. And he knocks Jason pretty good with some Rocky-style punches across a rooftop, and Jason punches him one time, and the guy's head comes clean off and lands on the taxi cab filled with the rest of his friends. How can you not love that? I, I, you pretty much summed it up of why I don't like it. <laughs> we have very different opinions on what makes a good horror movie. Obviously. I mean, that, that to me is, is up there all-time great. I made my sister watch that so many times when we were kids. Jason Takes Manhattan, man. Just take an idea, run with it, and just commit to it fully. And then you get that great shot of him standing on a skyscraper over, like Batman. It's like Batman. But instead he's wearing a, a hockey mask and holding a machete. And it's like, well, Jason's just going to kill this entire city. And it's actually, if I remember correctly, it's the, only the second time you see him with his mask off. And it's like, what would happen if the guy from the Goonies? What what what's the guy who lives in the basement? Goonies name? Oh um 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 um. Uh, not, not Gook. Um, not. Wow, oh. drop that out there. Uh, huh? Hold on, I'll just I'll just do this. I, I'll be honest with you. I am not the world's biggest Goonies sloth. Sloth yes. from the Goonies. Like, that's what Jason looks like under his mask. It, it was Sloth, but then Sloth's face also melted. Right. Like, it's, it's just disgusting. That's my number eight. Friday, Friday the 13th, Part 7, Jason Takes Manhattan. I'm, I'm kind of hoping this is not where we divide at this point. Because I'm kind of hoping we divide around four or five. But No, we've, we, we've, all, we've gone on separate tracks. Trust me on this. Though you'll like my number seven, because it's a weirder one. All right, Ooh. what's your number seven? Silence of the Lambs. Nice pick. Nice pick. Do you want to get into why, or do you think we can just let that one kind of sit? Well, again, I mean, this is is the last of the films I like to watch over and over again. I I was watching TV one day, and there was like a marathon, essentially. It was like all the Silence of the Lambs. But there's something about Silence of the Lambs, particularly Anthony Anthony Hopkins' role. Portrayal of, of Hannibal Lecter. Well, that, well, yes. And um, the, the two scenes that come to mind is when he's being transferred and he's in that big cage-like thing in a, in a gymnasium and when he eats, like, someone's face off or cuts someone's face off, that one. And the other iconic scene that's always in pop culture references and I can't think of the actor's name who was the lieutenant on Monk, but his camera scene where he, you know, tucks in the you-know-what. And yeah, and it, gives, and it gives the... Uh, the sexy dance. Yeah, the sexy dance and the, and the greatest... Uh, well, no, but it gives the greatest quotable line from that movie. It puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets... Well, not that one. The other one he says during that. Oh, the... Uh, that's, the one. that's the one that's always... Anytime... I hear that song, you know, it's like zoomed in in my head, like exactly where I was at (laughs) when I watched it and the actual scene itself, you know. No, I'm with you on that. That's one of those ones that has definitely always kind of stuck with you a little bit. And I I, I know the part you're talking about with the, where he tucks his dick between his legs. and I mean, like, we're on a podcast. We can swear. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I fuck me hard. Yeah, but even do when I you do say, that too well for you? No, it's like it's like like okay. 
Do I do, do I do that a little too well for you? Almost a cycle. I'm like, oh, I can see the image in my head already. In my defense, the only reason I'm so good at it is because Jay does such a great yes. job with it in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And I was rolling in my seat when they did that. And actually, my friend Laura would get at me on this. It's not Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. It's Clerks 2. He does it that in Clerks 2. It's Clerks 2. Uh, all right, my number seven, and you'll like this one, I think, Event Horizon. I haven't seen that one. You've never seen Event Horizon? No. Oh, if you're going to do yourself a favor, download and watch that movie tonight. That is, like, it's Halloween time, it's time to watch a scary one. It had, it pulled the greatest prank on me and my buddy Tony when we were kids. That movie came out, I want to say, in, in 1996, something around there. It's, it's right around when the... 97, yeah, so it's the same year. My friend Tony and I, when we were growing up, became big Star Wars fans in the early to mid-90s and became suckers for anything sci-fi. So we'd see anything. That's, that's when we saw Blade Runner. That's when we saw uh, Escape Pod, like all these, all these straight-to-blockbuster Straight to Blockbuster, by the way, for any kids listening under the age of 25, is a thing that means it went right to videotape, never went to the theater. Think Xfinity on-demand movies that never made it to the theater, but much worse than that. Okay. Uh, I'm just explaining for the young people. But it was a, it, we watched all of them. In the middle of all of this, there was this trailer for a movie called Event Horizon, and it was very much done like, here's a sci-fi movie, a little bit of a mystery, and that's not what it is. It's about a ship that is possessed, a spaceship that is possessed by the devil and is killing the crews off. And it features... Two actors in what I think are their best performances. One, Lawrence Fishburne as the captain of the ship is perfect in the role because he's a great hero in a creepy environment. But the selling point is Sam Neill from Jurassic Park and In the Mouth of Madness plays a man who slowly loses his mind and does it so creepily and so well. And here's the thing. When I saw that movie in theaters, I did not know I was going to see a horror movie, AJ. I thought I was going to see Star Wars. And it is not Star Wars. There are scenes where people have their bodies completely removed. There's a skinning. There's uh, explosive decompression. There's, uh, at one point, somebody falls and their spine and their skeleton is pushed out of their body from the moment of impact. Mm -hmm. It is... A creepy goddamn movie with a great ending. And it's yeah, it's on my list. It, it, people who know that movie know that it, it is up there. And Event Horizon is one of my favorite scary movies of all time. So much so that by the end of today, I might go home and watch a lot of these over again. But Event Horizon is one I haven't watched in a few years. But it is definitely on my list of all-time scaries. If you, if anybody out there doesn't know it, AJ, you don't know it, check it out. It'll creep, the, it'll, it'll creep you up. And the effects are good enough that it holds up. Okay. So, Event Horizon. What's your number six? My number six is Amityville Horror House. The, oh, the, so the original Amityville the original, Horror House. The original film, not... The Ryan Reynolds one. The 20th <laughs> version of it. So you're talking about the one with... Um, <clears throat> oh, what the hell. Uh, my, my brain is, is, is just not functioning right now. Amityville Horror. It's got a. It's with uh, Karen Allen, and I always get the Brolins mixed up. James Brolin or Josh Brolin? I think it's James Brolin is the younger Ray one, right? Brolin. Yeah, yeah, James Brolin. 
Yeah, that one's good. That one's creepy. It's got the the priest who shows up and is chased out of the house by the bugs. Uh, Amityville didn't make mine, uh, but I, I I know why it made yours. It's it is a great horror movie. It is, and um, but I also met one of the children too. Oh, you met one of the like. I met the, Chris Lutz. I think he was the youngest. From okay, from the like actual the actual mouth. the actual family. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you, uh, we can get on this for a second, though. Do you know about the controversy involving that story? That well, a lot- one. I mean, there's there's a controversy of nothing actually happened in the house. Right. And there's also the controversy of the family and the author, Jay Hen- Henson, when he wrote the book. Right. There's also the involvement uh, later on of the, uh, the family from The Conjuring, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Warren. Uh, the Warrens, who are featured in the movie The Conjuring, uh, Elizabeth right. and, um, I'm trying to remember, Lorraine oh, Lorraine and Ed Warren. Uh, yeah. they, they come to the, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren was in The Conjuring. <laughs> <laughs> Very different movie. Uh, but no, if you, if you go through and read about these people, they, when I, when you first hear about the Warrens, if you, especially in my case, when I was in high school, it's this great idea. These, these scientists who are paranormal investigators and do it very seriously. And as you, as time goes on, they were kind of revealed to be sort of scam artists, but that doesn't take away from the creepiness of that movie. And James Brolin does a fantastic job as that movie rolls on of playing the father who slowly unhinges and you, you start to wonder if he's actually going to... And it's one of those first horror movies where you don't automatically... It's from that great period in the 70s where heroes don't always win. Right. And, and, and I love I love Amityville Horror. It's a great movie. I mean, so when I met Chris Lutz, I mean, it was at a conference in Chicago, actually, two years ago, where he kind of dispelled a lot of things, like... Everything in the movie, like the pig in the window, that never happened. Um, the locusts or the flies, they came to the house and swarmed numbers, like that never happened. But what he did say what happened was that his stepfather actually like was a Vietnam vet who was on drugs, who was practicing the satanic arts also. Hmm. Did not. And the what he also said was like, when Jay Hansen, who wrote the book, the book came before the movie, so when Jay Hansen interviewed his parents, the parents didn't sign any contract for intellectual property, so essentially Jay Hansen kind of just took oh. their story and exaggerated on it. Right, and made it into a best-selling novel. And, they got and all the, the family film had right. no rights to the film also. Right, so they never really even made a dime off of it. No. Uh, I mean, but none of that takes away from... The achievement on film, which is just a, a creepy movie, and it's one of the few movies you see Karen Allen where she's not chasing after Indiana Jones. So there's also right. that, and you get a nice and, shot of her in, a, in her underwear. I remember that right. from when I was and, young. And there was a, a documentary, I forgot when, but um, it was talking about the whole the house and everything and what have you. And towards the end of the documentary, um, I can't think of the mother. I want to say it was Kathleen. Either way, yeah, Kathleen. At the yeah. towards the end of the documentary, all you see is her, and there's like a cross on the wall behind her, and she's living in Arizona at the time. And the cross falls off. I've seen that. 
Yeah, and then the, and the guy who was shooting the the camera, he goes, um, "That just came off." And she go, she turned around. She goes, "Oh yeah, that that always happens." Ah, you know, nothing better than just a crucifix that falls for no reason. All right, well, that's that's your, up down. Yeah, that's your number six. My number six is from 1996. Stars. I'm gonna see if you can guess it just based on some hints. It's it's the number one horror movie from the 90s. What is it? The number one movie from the nineties horror, horror, horror movie, movie from the nineties. What's the most famous nineties horror movie? Well, there's Blair Witch Project. Not that one, because I don't <laughs> think that I don't think that Blair Witch is the most famous. I picked Scream as my number six. Now, yeah, we have two different ideas of what else. Well, to me, here's why I love Scream. It has very little to do with the story or even the movie itself. It just embraces an idea that not enough horror movies get into in today's world, which is that the audience or the, the characters in all horror movies apparently exist in universes where horror movies don't exist. Right. And that's always bothered me. Because in today's world, like when they do a modern story of a haunted house, it's like when you watch The Walking Dead and they don't call them zombies. And you're like, you live in the world. These are zombies. We all accept that these are zombies. And in horror movies, it's, it, to me, it's always been, okay, there's a killer on the loose in town. Okay, well, don't go into rooms that the lights don't turn on in. Don't do any of these normal tropes. And the reason I love Scream is they take all of those ideas from 70s and 80s horror movies and, and have characters who just comment on them. And they talk about other horror movies. I've always loved... I mean, that opening scene with Drew Barrymore is one of the best scenes in horror movie history. It really is. Because she just plays it so straight of just, what's your favorite scary movie? And she just, uh, whatever she says, I think she says Halloween with Michael Myers or whatever. And eventually gets killed, her boyfriend's, you know, dead outside. I, for, I love the fact that they have a horror movie where people have seen horror movies. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. No, it does. And I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the genre. So I like it when people acknowledge that there are other fans of it, that we're not trying to constantly act like people don't know what's going on. That's why Scream is on my list. All right. You know, you're going to hate my number five. Why don't you give me your number five first? Exorcist. Nice pick. Should we, uh, for those of you who don't know why he picked that as his number five movie, go watch The Exorcist, come back, and then just argue why it's not on my top ten and why AJ only has it five. Uh, Max von Sydow in that movie is phenomenal. He is. And um, like Amityville Horror, I mean, it's, I guess one of those films that um, <clears throat> is iconic and it kind of sticks with you and there's certain images and, and you know even famous lines come out of it and they, they stick with you even after you watch the film and even pop culture references when you see it you, you know exactly when you saw it and actually the image of the film in your head also <clears throat> um, and again another based on a true story also there's also the fact that as you watch it, it, it's such an iconic movie that any movie involving an exorcism since then shoots it the same way. There's the bed, one or two priests, a confrontation with the... I mean, every movie that has an exorcism is in many ways just trying to do the exorcist. It's just how every fantasy author is trying to recreate Tolkien. You, you have a similar thing 
with The Exorcist. It's so iconic and so identifiable that every movie afterwards does, up to including like the tropes of the green vomit or the spinning head, are just accepted things of demon possession in any movie. If somebody does one of those things, you automatically know that it's a demon to the point where it doesn't need to be explained to the audience. That's how well-known that movie is outside of its own story. But let's just go with that for a moment here. So my number 10 was Dracula. And as I said, I mean, that's, you know, that Dracula I was referring to kind of set the standard of what all Dracula movies ought to be, or at least vampire movies ought to be and everything, with the exception of Blade, obviously. Um, Some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate their way uphill. (laughs) Greatest line ever said by Wesley Snipes, besides always bet on black. Continue. And so with any Dracula movie you see, you know, he always has to wear some sort of cape. He has to be in some sort of, like, mansion or castle or what have you. Um, he has to be sexy about... in a way. What? You ha- he has to be sexy in a way where you're drawn to him. Yeah. You, you know, that's got to be a big part of it. Yeah, and the same thing you're saying about, you know, any exorcist movies. You know, there's always a bed, you know, a priest or two, stuff like that, which, you know, obviously you kind of need that priest <clears throat> to a degree, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in a bed. You know, it could be... In a house, in a cornfield, a barn, whatever. But there's always something to be said about when certain movies, not just horror movies, even action movies and other stuff, that there's a baseline and, you know, when do you start going away from the norm? And in some cases, a movie does it so well that that it becomes just the norm. Like, even beyond, like, people trying to recreate it, it's just that is how it is accepted that if there is going to be an exorcism, that's how it's done. And I mean, that's why I call it some, well, we can go to all the way back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s on certain films, but I kind of use a Titanic as that measuring stick of how people kind of copy certain things. Because, you know, look at any drama film, there's always some sort of Titanic component to it. How do you mean? There's always that love lust. But for the man after a woman, or vice versa, there's always that romantic scene. There's always yeah, I see. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying, and it, it, you could even make an argument that Titanic also influenced, you know, all the Roland Emmerich disaster porn yeah. movies that exist, where it's the same story. And you know, I'll never let go, Jack, even though there's plenty of room on the goddamn door that she could have let him sit on, and she just lets Leonardo DiCaprio die. Which I'm convinced he just didn't. He he realized that she was high maintenance and wanted to get out of it. <laughs> wow. I'm convinced that Leo kills himself at the end of that movie because he would rather be dead than date that British chick. <laughs> would you want to date her? She seemed like there was a lot going on in her life. And clearly she does. she's not financially responsible. She throws away the diamond at the end of that movie. Stupid, stupid move. I mean, that was just selfish, realistically. When she throws away the diamond at the end, give it to your daughter, your granddaughter. They're clearly hurting for money. That's why they've agreed to this to begin with. Give them the blue diamond, the heart of the ocean. Let them sell it, and everybody's happy. But no. But, Nick, that means materialistic things does not mean anything when you're in love with someone. Yeah, that's great to say when you're 90 years old and are about to kill yourself on a boat. You know, you know who would like some materialistic things? Your granddaughter, who's probably got a kid. <laughs> she probably needs a little bit of help financially. Just saying. She spends all of her time taking care of you. She puts you on a damn boat trip to the middle of the goddamn Atlantic Ocean. The least you can do is, you know, 
pay it forward a little bit. That's all I'm saying. My point is, my point is, take over Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I listen. All all they had to uh, Romeo got off light, man. All he had to do was just let her be dead. And you're like, you got your rocks off. You're good to go. You know, this is this is why I've never had a relationship that's lasted longer than six months. I'm not the romantic type. <laughs> all right, so you went with The Exorcist. And in, I love that when you go with the classics, my response in number is just the exact opposite. And it's, all, it's the same franchise as the last time we got into this. Number five, Jason Goes to Hell. Jason number nine. Jason nine, yeah. Your reaction, sir? I have no reaction. I have no response to it. I, I said it before. Okay. Two reasons why this movie makes because I always only two. There are well, there are two reasons why this movie is this ranked this high. This should be zero. No, I, I well, goddamn it, son, let me finish. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I don't know about you, but I've always felt that a part of what makes me love a movie is not just the movie itself, but the circumstances that surround you when you saw it. I love the movie Independence Day, yes, because it's what it is. But also because whenever I watch the movie Independence Day, I can very clearly remember sitting in Golf Mill Theater, eight rows back from the front, with my dad at midnight. Even though he'd been working all day, he went out of his way to take me to see that movie at midnight. And it always meant a lot to me that he did it. Because I know he didn't care about that movie very much. He wanted to see it a little bit. and Definitely not enough to go see it at midnight. But it was important to me, so he went. So that's why I love the movie Independence Day. Ironic, not not ironically, but also this movie is there because of an attachment to my dad, which is funny because my dad hates horror movies. He does not like them. When I was a kid, my parents and my dad doesn't even remember this story, and he's going to listen to this podcast later and call me and be like, "That's not what happened," but whatever. My parents took me, my sister, and a few other people to go see. I swear to God, the, the juxtaposition of these two movies is great. We went to go see a revival showing of the movie My Fair Lady at McClurg Court in the city. It was like during this period when they were shutting down McClurg Court, which for yeah. those of you who had never have you ever, did you ever go there when it was open? Yeah, I've been there a few times. It's an old school movie house. It's not a theater, it's a movie house. You go in, they have the curtain, there's intermissions, there's food, there's booze. It's it's the way movies were in like the 40s and 50s. The way the movie should be. The way the movie should be. And we went to go see My Fair Lady. But my dad and I got there, I think, an hour earlier than my mom, my sister, and my grandmother were going to be. So we went to the bar next door. To, he wanted to get a drink. I was going to, you know, get something to eat, whatever. And we're sitting down at the bar. It must have been around Halloween. Because in the back of the bar, maybe even it was like a cigar lounge or a restaurant, somebody had on... Jason Goes to Hell, which had just come out on video. And I'm watching it. And the first time I ever saw a pair of naked breasts was in this bar, while, like on film. I'd seen magazines, but on film. Was in this bar while this girl is having sex with a boy in, in a tent. And Jason stabs through the tent with a spike through both of them and kills them. That's one. That scene stuck with me so much that we went and watched this three-hour showing of My Fair Lady, and all I could think about were the very nice boobs that I had seen in the horror movie that were then covered in blood. Very confusing to a young man. And I eventually went home, and we got, I got my mom and dad to rent me the movie, because I, I 
when I wanted to see a movie that I didn't like, I'd learned when I was a baby, when I watched, not a baby, but a small kid, that when I watched Star Trek II and Spock died, I raised holy hell. I was like, I don't want to live in a world where Spock is dead. And my dad immediately went to Blockbuster and rented the movie. So I knew that if I played it a little bit that I couldn't sleep because I didn't know what happened in the movie. So we stopped at Blockbuster on the way home, and my dad rented me Jason Goes to Hell. I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you know how Jason Goes to Hell ends? No, because I didn't watch it. Oh, screw you. Jason, <laughs> Jason goes <laughs> to hell. I say, when I saw Jason 4, that was the end of it for he and I. We, we parted ways since. All right. Here's how Jason goes to the hell exception ends. exception of Jason's mother. That was the only other time I saw past 4. Okay. Here's the thing with Jason goes to hell. When he is defeated at the end of the movie, as he is at the end of all of his movies... His mask is lying on the dirt outside of his mother's house, okay? Mm-hmm. It's just lying there. It's some creepy music is playing. And all of a sudden, as they're getting ready to fade out, Freddy's glove pops up out of the dirt, grabs the mask, and you hear Robert Englund's voice go, Come to hell! And he pulls the mask down. Because Freddy had died the year before. Mm-hmm. That was the first time in my life that I realized that movies could cross over. Because once that happens, what that told me as a kid was, Freddy and Jason live in the same world. And the reason Jason Goes to Hell is on my list at number five is because of what it represented for universes crossing over. It never would have even occurred to me to follow comic books the way that I do without Jason Goes to Hell. So it gets a special mention in my heart. Not to mention, it involves a scene where the United States Army bombs Jason. Bombs him. What year was that movie? Uh, Let's see. Jason Goes to Hell. Army would say 99 or or 2000. Nope, 93. I was 11. Well, I asked about the year because I thought there was some crossover with certain comic films. Captain America, Punisher. Yeah, but I wasn't into that stuff when I was 11. Like, not enough to understand it when I was 11. That was the, because it was such a blaring example of crossover. Like, Mm -hmm. that's Freddy's glove. You know what I'm saying? That's Freddy. And I love Freddy. I love Freddy so much that, honestly, my top ten list could just be six through one. It's just the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, and when he does that, I was just like, we're going to get Freddy versus Jason. I didn't know it was going to take 20 years to get to that point, but it meant that there was an, there was a possibility of Freddy and Jason in a movie together. So that movie is on my, is number five. What's your number four? Well, before I get into my number four, did you ever hear the rumor about a Freddy versus Jason versus Ash? Well, alien. What about alien? That was I heard a rumor a while back. It was supposed to be Freddy versus Freddy versus Jason versus the alien from Aliens. Well, no, the 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 rumor you're talking about it was going to be Freddy versus it was going to be Freddy versus Jason versus Alien versus Predator. They were going to bring all four of them together and have them do a thing. But that was at the same time they were talking about my favorite idea for that I've ever heard, which was Freddy versus Jason versus Ash from the Evil Dead movies. Oh, I never heard that one. Yeah, it got adapted into a comic book later on, but it was originally the movie idea, and basically lawyers stopped it from happening because they didn't want Ash to kill them both. 
And realistically, if an Ash can't kill them, then what's the point of the movie? But it, it was this idea that you're going to have Bruce Campbell as Ash fighting Robert Englund as Freddy and whoever's behind the mask is Jason. Awesome. Yeah. But that was the uh, that was that idea. Um, so that's Fred. Uh, so what's your number four? Blair Witch Project. Okay. Now I get to go. What the hell is wrong with you? Why? That movie is terrible. No. Okay. The, so Jason Takes Manhattan is a better movie than the Blair Witch Project. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. You ready? Yeah. I agree with you in part that it was a horrible movie. At that time. Are you giving it brownie points because it started found footage horror? Don't think ahead of me now. Okay. But yes, I mean, that movie set a standard again of what we would see with other horror films also. But you also have to agree that when you saw it, that like Eraserhead, when, when I first saw it, it's like, okay, what is going on here? This is a whole new format of film. This is, where are we going with this? And then when you go all the way to the end, like, I don't know about, I don't know if you ever saw it, but I mean, my adrenaline was like rushing like 48 hours, it seemed, for me. You know, and anytime I went either camping or was in a rural area, it's like, oh, crap, I don't want to see <laughs> the Blair Witch Project. See, my thing with Blair Witch Project was I, when I saw that movie in theaters, I saw it in the theater at Randhurst Mall in, uh, up off of 83. It's amazing how often I know what theater I was at when I saw certain movies. Uh, but I was at Randhurst Theater with about eight of my buddies, and we went and saw That was, what, 99, I think, Blair yeah. Witch? 99, 2000-ish. Yeah, so when we went and saw that, uh, my friend Hannibal... I have a friend named Hannibal. He uh, he got motion sickness during the movie. Like he was one of those people you heard about. Like he couldn't do it, and he literally walked out and th- and threw up because the the camera was moving too much. My problem with that movie was it it, it just I didn't feel like the payoff at the end was great. I, and I do I understand. Listen, I've been a big fan of the the monster you don't see is always scarier than the monster you do see in your head, mm-hmm. but. I just never, like, as the movie played out, I feel that that movie is, is best described by Family Guy. Do you know how Family Guy describes that movie? Oh, I, I remember the episode, but remind me. Brian takes a blind man to see the movie. This is before they had gotten canceled and then relaunched. It's like the, one of the last episodes of their original run. Canceled from Fox, that is. Yeah, and then brought back on Fox, but before the DVDs came out. Right. And during its original original run, they have this joke where Brian takes a, man, a blind man to see the movie as a seeing eye dog and goes, Is there a movie starting? Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Something about a map. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. It's over. Everyone in the audience looks pissed. <laughs> And it's just like, that's how I felt when I watched that movie. I'm like, nothing's happening. These people just keep fighting. Like, it's not that hard to get out of the woods if you're lost. Just mark an object further down and then move in that direction. It's not the most difficult thing to do. You've only been in the woods for a day. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? Like, everything about that movie to me was, you're not that screwed. Stop acting like you're that screwed. And then I didn't think the ending was good. Just the guy standing in the corner, then one scary shot of something. 
Like, I didn't care. I, to me, that movie did nothing for me. I got to the end, and unfortunately for me, I hate found footage movies. I hate them so much. They're so lazy. And they, it spawned this thing where as long as you have a camera and a bunch of your friends, you can just go make a horror movie and say, this movie, this footage was found by cops. Which got to the point where the ultimate evolution of the unbelievability of found footage movie, Apollo 18. Have you seen Apollo 18? No. Here's my problem with found footage movies, best summed up by the movie Apollo 18. That movie is about the secret mission to the moon that we don't know about, because on Apollo 17 they had found alien something on the moon. So they send up Apollo 18 which goes to the moon. They are then attacked by the crab rock things from Pirates of the Caribbean 3. Only way to describe it, that moon rocks are actually evil alien crab creatures. Okay? The movie ends with one of the protagonists racing across the Sea of Tranquility to get to the secret Russian lunar lander. So far, by the way, I'm with them on all of it until there's a scene where the guy flying the, the pickup shuttle, the, 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 the orbiter around the moon, says, make sure you grab those videotapes so we can tell everybody on Earth what happened. And he says that, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. He's going to get the tapes up to the thing, and they're going to go home, and there'll be some sort of cliffhanger here on the moon where people come back. You would think that that's the logical conclusion of the movie, but it's not. When he launches in the Russian lunar lander, about 8 million rocks float up when gravity leaves in front of his face and they pop into the evil crab aliens and they kill him. And the last thing you hear in the movie, AJ, is the guy flying the orbiter going, slow your approach, slow your approach, we can't dock at this speed, Eddie, whatever your name is, slow your approach. And then you just hear, boom, movie's over. Implying that it had collided with the orbiter. So what's the logical question? Logical conclusion to that, AJ? What's my biggest question? I have no idea. The logical problem with that movie is if you had to get the videotapes to the thing to make sure that people on Earth would know what happened, you would theoretically have had to get the tapes back to Earth for us to see this film or this footage. Right. So if they both went up and collided and blew up, the footage doesn't get back to Earth. Which means to get the footage, there's also Apollo 19, where they'd have to go back up, not knowing anything, and basically go through the exact same problems they went through in the last one, except this time, there's no Russian thing to get them off the planet in the first place. So they're just going to constantly be sending astronauts up there to keep getting killed by the alien crab things. That's Here's my... my Here's my question. I didn't see this film, right? No, you don't have to. Trust, don't waste your time. But how do you see the film? Because, like, Cloverfield, we know that something happened because his camcorder that, my. That's my point, AJ. That's my point. There's no but, way for us to see this movie. You can't make a movie if the very existence of the movie it goes against your plot. So, in this whole film, you're kind of seeing a POV from the person right. shooting the film? Yes. But it got destroyed. Right. But we're still watching it. Yeah, that's, that's just horrible. Right. It's just the biggest Horror logic. director and the guy producing it. Everybody. Everybody involved. No one noticed that just giant logic hole in the middle of the movie. 
And that's how I feel a lot of times with a lot of found footage movies. Like, okay, yeah, the cops found this footage, whatever. But for the most part, if you were attacked by some horrible creature, I doubt they would just leave the tapes around. Not to mention, Ghostbusters teaches us that they put out electromagnetic fields that would mess up the film. But that's whatever. But Blair Witch Project is your number four. My right. number four, again, just we're doing opposite day. And I don't know if you've seen this one or not. It's a little bit more obscure in that it's just older. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Excuse me? Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Oh, so you weren't being funny. No, that's really my number four movie. Why? Because it features Bela Lugosi as Dracula, Lon Chaney as the Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, and... uh, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. The three universal monsters in their three most iconic roles while being played for comedy against Abbott and Costello. Who so are, is, is this your, what I referred to earlier as the Monster Squad movie that yeah. was my honorable mention is yours? Yes, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up. I just loved the idea that all the monsters know each other and they're all teaming up and there's like this whole plot. And Bela Lugosi knows he's in a comedy, but he never vary. He plays it. The great power of the movie is that the monsters play it exactly like they would in any other version of their movies. But Abbott and Costello walk around doing their... There's only one really funny person in the entire movie. It's Costello. Everyone else plays the movie 100% straight. The only person who's funny is Costello, and he's so funny that it makes the movie into a comedy. It's it's one of my favorite scary like horror movies of all time because it has all of those universal guys at the height of their powers doing something that's just crazy. That reminds reminds me of the film with Marlon Brando, and I can't think of the other guy's name who was in it. Kind of played this guy gets a job, and Marlon Brando plays like this quasi-mafia character. The Freshman with Matthew Broderick. You're talking about the one where he's the godfather, but he's not? Exactly. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that, but for a horror flick. Same exact concept. Like, we're going to take these iconic characters and put them in just a different setting and kind of see what happens. It's, it's, I love The Freshman. You're right. It's the same same exact concept. All right, we've now reached the all-important top three. Not yet, because I'm trying to figure out why that's your number four. Honestly, because, like I said, I think why I love movies is a lot to do with when and how I saw them. And I remember I used to sleep over at my grandmother's house when I was a kid, and she'd let us rent whatever movies we wanted. And I must have rented this movie, I don't know, 20 times. And it's just, I have such a nostalgic love for it. I love Abbott and Costello. Uh, my grandmother got me all the tapes, uh cassette tapes actually of all their old radio shows i've seen all of their movies when i was a kid i think it was because it was just like they could it wasn't dirty entertainment and she liked them and i i just loved abbott and costello and then to have it mixed with my mother loved universal horror movies so it was like this thing where i could combine these two different things together to make something great i just I've always really loved that movie, and I, I get older. It's one of those things when it's on, like, even, like, the TV Guide channel, it pops up occasionally. I'll watch it on there. Like, I just love that movie. I think it's a great, great film. Okay. What's your number? Th- All right, we're in our top threes now. What's your number three? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nice pick. You just love Leatherface? 
It goes back to iconic. Just the original, right? Not the yeah, the original, that knockoff version. Okay. Um, it goes back to like you know iconic images and all that, as I said before. And I mean that. Anytime I see it, I still have a hesitation of wanting to see it because it is so gritty, and there's like this, well, dare I say, grunginess to it because it's like this could be the real deal. Yeah, it's as, it's as close to a found footage movie as you can get without having it be a found footage movie. And that also, like the others I've mentioned, um, is based off true events, not a real story. Okay, I see what you Yeah, and, and, and the, the true factor of it is what gets you. Well, yeah, because um, it's actually based off a serial killer in Wisconsin, who that's what he did. Yeah, it's but, Ed Gein, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who kidnapped people, skinned them, wore them, all that great jazz. All this, all the, all the wonders of home. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, my number three, I don't know if you've seen it or not. I know it's actually not a very popular movie uh, it, when it came out, but I think it kind of picked back up and rebroadcast. My number three favorite scary movie, 1408. Do you know that one? 1408. John no. Cusack in the Haunted Hotel Room. No, no, I, I, I didn't see it, but that's one of those films. I'm like, I want to see that. You, you should download it and watch more it. More suspenseful it's, than horror. It is more suspenseful than horror. It's a Stephen King short story uh, adapted. It's originally an audio book only short story that Stephen King wrote that I bought the day the book on tape came out. And about a month after the book on tape came out, I got optioned for a movie starring John Cusack. And I waited for three years for the movie to come out. And... I remember seeing that movie in theaters with my then girlfriend, and she was terrified. It is one of the. It's it's a very good movie, and it deals, it, and it literally has two. It has two actors, three actors if you include one other character. But for the most part, it is done with just Samuel L. Jackson and just John Cusack. And the entire movie rides around the idea that when John Cusack arrives at a hotel, he is given an explanation as to why he should not want to stay in that room. And there's a whole plot as to why he wants to. But why he should not stay in that room by Samuel Jackson is a 20-minute scene that gets you so unsettled that by the time he gets into the room, you are ready to be terrified. And it is just done very well. And it's John Cusack in his everyman role where you identify with him as the movie plays out. Perfectly done. Uh, it's just it's such a creepy, claustrophobic story that mm-hmm. it if you watch it and then have to go stay in a hotel room, it will terrify you. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is just a great film. 1408. Plus, I needed to get Stephen King on the list. <clears throat> but, um... I mean, I guess I when you said Stephen King, I think I slightly remember that. But does isn't that short story a spinoff or um, a prelude into Dark Tower? There's if you really really want to look for it, it's there, but it's not really. I thought someone said, or I may have made it up <clears throat> about how that was attached to a, another story that Stephen King did. There, There's, okay, in every Stephen King story in his books, you can pretty much find a reference to the Dark Tower somewhere, either in a brand, 
right. that she used or something like that. But if you if you're a really I'm a diehard Dark Tower fan. I've read every book multiple times. It's not. It really doesn't have much to do with anything uh, with the Dark Tower. It's just a really good self-contained creepy story there's a scene in the book and in the movie where he starts getting phone calls from whatever the demon or possession that controls the hotel i'll put it this way there's a great part where john cusack before he goes up to the room is talking to sam jackson and sam jackson goes he's like you don't want to go up there and john cusack goes what do you think is in there a demon poltergeist what and sam jackson stops looks at him dead in the eye and goes it's an evil fucking room this way sir <laughs> it it just has this this ability as you kind of watch the movie to really screw with you a little bit uh but that's my number three 1408 stephen king uh john cusack sam jackson movie aj yeah give me your best number two i had to say it paranormal, that way. paranormal activity oh god okay why? Um, that I gotta say honestly, it just scared the shit out of you. It scared the shit out of me, and it kind of hit home for me as well. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, not so much like what on in the film, re- being related to it and everything. As you know, um, I've gone to a few haunted places in my life. Yeah. Did, did yeah. you not know that? I did know that. We talked about it before on shows. You've, right. You and I have debated ghost hunting many times. Right. And watching that film, and it kind of like reflected back to places that I've been to before and kind of resonate with some of the things that were going on, but not at that magnitude of the things that are going on if that makes sense no it does and and i give that movie credit for some really creepy scenes i mean there are some scenes in that movie that are just downright creepy the uh, and it does have one of like i talked to you earlier about insidious with the dad saying uh you know fine we'll get the hell out of this house it does have one of my favorite moments in 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 horror where the boy is it are they married in the in the first one? I don't remember. Yeah, they, they are married. Newly married, if I remember right. Yeah, and he walks. At one point, the ghost is just pissing him off, so mm-hmm. he walks out into the hallway and tells the ghost to go screw itself yes. in so many words. And then he turns around, and the ghost just drags him out into the hallway and slams the door on him and stuff. Yes, great, great scene. Yeah, I mean, and especially those who you know actually do like paranormal. As a quote, almost a living, I should say, quote unquote. I know some who actually do it for a living. Um, they will even tell you that movie was great in that there's like some reality to some of those things, but there's also a lot of comedic things to it. Also, like the guy being dragged from the bed and not realizing it, you yeah. know, or um, certain poltergeist activities, stuff like that. But there are some things in there that kind of makes some sense in others, but you know, yeah, I mean, it's one of those films that some people kind of, it's more scary than horror, but I think that's what made that film what it is. I mean, I, I mean, even writing it down for this episode, I mean, it it just sends some nerves down my spine. Um, 
I, I can see why you, you that one. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, there are moments in that movie that are downright terrifying. It's got that eerie feel, too, when the blankets are just being slightly moved and you're right. watching it on film. Like, that stuff's cool. There's some very cool stuff in those in in that movie in that whole franchise actually i just i really feel like at the end of the day you'll be able to take i think at this point there'll be six of them i think there's going to come a point where you can take all six movies and kind of cut it down into a three-hour movie oh no doubt i mean there are yeah if not one big documentary right exactly you know um but that being said, it, I completely get why it's so high on your list because I have Insidious number ten. There's not to say that new horror movies are bad, and to be honest with you, if it scares you, it scares you. You know, The Boogeyman, which is a movie that came out a few years ago. It's not in my top twenty of horror movies, but it, and it wasn't even a very good one. But there were just some really elaborate, very good scares that got me. And so, if a movie gets you, it gets you. And a Paranormal Activity apparently got you. Oh yeah, I mean. At first, I thought, okay, okay, this is going to be funny. And, I mean, yeah, admittedly, there are some more movie magic than anything else, right? <clears throat> because uh, that, that actually is what makes it work for me. They do some really old-school scares in ways that you're like, like just a shot of a door opening and closing on itself seamlessly with you not being able to tell how they're really doing it is so goddamn unsettling. Well, that's that's what I'm talking about. I mean, there are like some things in there from a cinematography standpoint that you had to ask yourself, especially someone like myself and others who've been to haunted places. So it's like, okay, how do they do that? You know, it's movie magic, but the same token, like, no, I've seen a door open by itself, or you know, I have felt a cold breeze and I've seen this move or whatever, or you heard this voice. Um, but it's a matter of how do they replicate that, hmm. if that makes sense. No, it does, and it's a, and it is a, it's a good the, the 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 paranormal activity movies for what they are are fi- are fantastic movies. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I I mean, I, the offer still stands. You know, take you down to Montino, Illinois, where it's haunted, or other places in Chicago that's also haunted, and. You know, I mean, I'm down to do it. You're just going to have to host about 12 of my friends because I don't do anything on the weekends without at least six people. That's fine. They can come along, too, you know, and I'll even double the ante. You go to those things. The next day you watch Paranormal Activity. All right. That works for me. Well, then we will schedule a trip to Mantino to uh, – how are you supposed to say it? Montano? I always pronounce it Mantino. Yeah, Mantino. Well, for those who don't know, it's the south of Chicago by what, hour and a half? Yeah, something like that. It, it, listen, as long as we're not driving out to, like, Ambo- Amboy, Illinois, I'm fine. Because I, I once drove out to Amboy, Illinois, which is in the middle of the state. Like That's by me. Yeah. But Amboy, there was supposedly some haunted, I don't know, pharmacy or something. Like, it turned out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was very disappointing, although we did find a meth lab. Um, no, that makes sense. Yeah. On both grounds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's yours, number two, is Paranormal Activity. My number two is yeah. Alien by Ridley Scott. Of course. Of course. That's going to be her number two. But here, well, why, why do you say that? Why do you say of course? Why do you say the same thing about Eraserhead? <laughs> I mean. All right. But my answer is very simple. 
It's very simple. It's not the plot, which is great. It's not the sets, which are fantastic. It's not the fact that it's sci-fi, also fantastic. It's the scene, the one scene. It's the one scene combined with the fact that the alien is without a doubt, no questions asked, nothing compares to it, the most terrifying looking fucking thing I have ever seen in my life and in my nightmares. That creature by H.R. Geiger is the scariest fucking thing I have ever seen. I can see that. No, I can really see that. That, um, that, that creature is so scary to me that I, there is no video game in the world that gives me greater pleasure than Aliens vs. Predator when I get to kill all of those things because they terrify me. The way it moves, the way it looks, the KY jelly mixed with water for the slime, the mouth within the mouth that eats brains, like just it was like H.R. Geiger went, okay, I want to create something that will terrify people for the next 1,000 years. Here it is. And then I'm going to design these walls that match this thing that it can just hide in. That creature is so scary to me that it, it's automatically the, the number two scariest, best horror movie I've ever seen. I've, I've, I love that, that movie because so I – go ahead. If there's ever a haunted house – and you had to go into a room, and the alien. I'm gonna is kill in it. There. I'm gonna kill it. <laughs> I'm going to attack it because it's going to attack me. Like, there's a video game that came out a couple a, a year ago called Alien Isolation. Have you heard about it? No. Okay. The plot. Of, the video game is basically the plot of Alien One. You're Ripley's daughter. You're on a space station. There's an alien. One alien. That's it. One alien is on the station. You have no guns, and even the guns you do have are remarkably ineffective against what this thing is. And the entire game, AJ, the entire game is just this thing hunting you. And you have to hide and set up elaborate traps to slow it down. It's like a puzzle game, but the crux of it is the entire game, if you make one mistake, the alien is going to appear behind you and kill you. And you don't know when it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. Interesting. And it does such a good job of, of putting you into the mindset of the movie. And that creature, I, I honestly, can you think of another movie monster that just on looks, like most movie monsters with lighting, whatever, if you do it the right way, is going to look scary. But in a brightly lit room with all the lights on, like you're saying in a haunted house, fuck a haunted house, in an office, if somebody, if I was going to a meeting about making a movie, another alien movie, and someone brought a full-sized model of the alien to the meeting just to show it, I would not take my eyes off that thing the entire time it was there because if it started to move, I would have to attack it or run. And I'm fat and I'm slow. So that thing is going to kill me. Okay. There is nothing scarier than an alien. Which is why that is the number, it's my number two movie on my list, but it's definitely, in my opinion, the scariest movie on my list. What's so not even Spawn's Lucifer? What do you mean? As far as scarier creature? No. Yeah. It, well, I, I think of it as the comic Spawn, maybe, but the movie one, hell no. But no, it, even, 
I'm, I'm literally racking my brain here trying to think. Like, Leatherface is terrifying because of the skin he's wearing, right? Freddy's scary because of the burned makeup. You know, Jason, when he takes his mask off, is body horror. The fly body horror. Uh, but terrifying monster, I, size isn't, it, it, you know, I've I'm, I'm always been of the opinion that size doesn't matter that much. Uh, <laughs> but, right. real, but realistically, the, the way, it's, it's, it's a combination of the fact that it's jet black. It always is covered in slime. It moves like a scorpion slash snake. The way that they've got the mouth mechanics, where the lips quiver as it opens its mouth to kill you. Uh, In the sequels, the fact that it's not even really killing you, that it pulls you away and nests you so that it can implant embryos into you to burst out of your skin. The fact that it starts off so small and within a day is the size of a truck. Like, everything about it, and then just the lines on it, the, the bony skeletons, the, the, the long, slooped-back head. Like, all of it just combines to create the best description I've ever had for it is it is, a, it is, what, it is the thing that nightmares are made out of. So, let me ask this, <clears throat> before we get to our number ones. How much of things like that equate to our perception of real, quote-unquote, monsters? In other words, there are certain animals, there's even certain people. Because of either disfiguration, because of whatever, that when we see something like, you know, your I, your perception of this, the alien is very horrifying in the ways that you just mentioned. But when we actually see something in real life, how much of our perception of in through horror films, and I would even argue certain sci-fi and fantasy films, into real things in our lives? Well, I... I th- I see what you're saying, like, as far as, like, does the horror movie inform our reactions in the real world, whereas I would actually argue that it's the reverse, that it's our reactions in the real world have to be tempered. Like, if you meet somebody who is horrifically scarred, for an example, in the real world setting, you're going to have... I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody who's listening who is is like this, but there's there's an instinct of revulsion in the real world that you must combat against for the sake of the other person, right? Like you see someone who's been horribly burned, your natural inclination is to be scared by it, but at the same time, you know that it's a real person. The other side to that is you also have empathy for that person. The great thing about horror films is they allow us to do the one thing that we cannot do in the real world, which is judge something just solely on how it looks. Right? Like, the alien is evil because it looks the way that it looks. Right. You know, if you were ever going to do a story about the aliens as the heroes of their own movie, you'd have to soften their appearance because just based on looks, they look evil. So I would say it's reversed, that when you see people in real life, I mean, I, I can't, honestly, I've never met somebody, no matter how horrifically uh, they may look, that I've instantly thought movie, unless they look exactly like something from a movie, if that makes sense. No, it does, but I guess, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. When I was younger, I had this fear of people who were disabled. Okay. I had a real fear of it. Like, I couldn't go to a nursing home. I couldn't even go to the nearby development center where my parents volunteered at times, you know. 
<clears throat> than actually going into like one of their events. I couldn't go in um, because I remember certain films, and I also remember other like comics and stuff like that where they portray people in like different mutations and stuff like that, right? right. So when I was younger, call it you know crossover realities or whatever, but I mean that was like a real fear for me. You know, like I'm actually seeing something in real life, you know, and it's scaring me, you know, obviously over time that kind of really quelled. Right. But I'm always interested if our psyche ever does like cross over, you know, what we see on films and then how that is perceived in real life. Not just even horror films, but even other films, too. I I think that there's definitely a, a thing when you're younger that that definitely happens. Uh, I feel as though as when you get older, though, you're able to understand how cruel life can just be to people. Right. Uh, and, and kind of it, it moves into more of a pity aspect, which is a, it's, which is a horror in and of its own right. Right. You know. But it's, it's, it's again, I think it's more reverse. I think we take what scares us in the real world and apply it to the horror films. Which is why, you know, before we get to our number ones, if you look, there are psychological reasons why each culture's horror movie is different in its own way. American horror movies aren't scary to people around the world for the most part. American horror stories are all about leaving the city and going to a rural location. Isolation is the great American fear. Believe Mm -hmm. it. You know, to be isolated in a city that is mainly urban. Yes, there are large parts of agriculture, but for the most part, even people in small towns, it's a small town. You don't have a lot of people who live solely on their own. Whereas in England, for example, it's the reverse. All their scary stories take place in the city because that's where all the evil has taken place in their culture. Here, it's the cult leaders and the stuff like that, or you know, even going back to uh, Revolutionary War times, you know, what was out in the frontier? Well, that's where the Indians were, and Indians were Native Americans. Now I'm saying Indians in the parlance of the time. You know, yeah. there's the they're, they're mystics and they're evil. And, you know, if you go to New Orleans, like, it's not in New Orleans where the evil people are, but it's out in the bayou, right, where the mm-hmm. evil is, where it's isolated. That's the American fear. It's different in every culture. Japanese is very much about... Um, constriction and uh, claustrophobia. A lot of their movies all take place in one setting because Japan, you know, it's such an overpopulated culture and especially in cities like Tokyo uh, and Okinawa where they, where they, uh, not Okinawa, I'm sorry. Anyway, where they, they're, they're so tightly packed that there's a fear inherent in that. Each culture has its own fear. And uh, German horror movie is all about what a person is capable of. That's not hard to figure out why they would have that fear. You know, right. it's 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 all relative to their culture. Now, well, I mean, in, in, in to that point, in this isn't a really an exaggeration, but on point, the movie Open Water. Exactly. I mean, that's like the I feel the poster movie for what you're talking about when it comes to American films. You know, the fear of being isolated, um, not knowing the unknown. And Open Water, I think, is that film. Interesting. I assume, though, that Open Water is not your number one. No. What's your number one movie on this list of what we've basically decided is what is horror to each of us? What's your number one? I'm going to say this. It's pretty much what you were talking about. It's an original Japanese film that became Americanized. I still cannot watch this movie 
Um, and I am not afraid to say that there are times I do leave a light on at night because of this film. Um, the Ring. Okay. I can see why. That movie, especially the Japanese version, is terrifying. And I classify The Ring like Eraserhead and others, um, an art film, because it has elements of that. But um, uh, here's the brief. I, I remember it was I was on a date <laughs> when watching this. This person and I were the only ones in the film except for a person that was four rows ahead of us near the exit, saw the whole film, um, was petrified beginning to end, and I just remember this one gentleman just kind of getting up and leaving the room, and I, was, I thought this was, like, it was part of the performance, <laughs> but it wasn't. And I remember, like, that night, um, I don't know if we had a storm or something, but all of a sudden the TV came on by itself. And then you immediately wet your bed and pulled the covers over your head. Well, no, what happened was I accidentally um, <laughs> pushed the person I was dating off the bed because I was so scared. <laughs> How long did that relationship last after, last after that? Four months. Yeah, it's, a, it's longer than I would have thought. Most of the women I dated, if I pulled that trick, they'd be done on the, done on, done on the spot. That's, I mean, yeah, I mean, but no. Like, she goes, what's going on? I'm like, the TV just came on, and she was scared too. Right. Um, you, but oh, then, let me ask you a question. Based on what goes on in that movie, did you walk towards the TV with your eyes closed just no. to make sure you didn't see it? Uh, no, I tried to walk away far from as I could. That's good. That's I even, good. I even unplugged. I remember even unplugging my TV. That's great. No, I, I've I've had moments like that where, um, it's it's you've you've watched something scary. Uh, it didn't make my honorable mentions or even my top ten. But the one movie that scared me a lot when I was a kid and I reenacted at slumber parties was Candyman. And yep. I nope. That nope. I won't even talk about it. You won't talk about Candyman. <laughs> Oh, you can. I won't. I can see my reflection in the computer right now. Ready? Candyman. No. Nope. Candyman. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Candyman. No. No. That's no. four. Oh, look. You're, you're That's muted. Four. That's four. That's only four. I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. I think I'm actually on mute. I think AJ still has me muted. Nope. I'm right here now. Okay. I did it four times. I did not do the fifth one. Candyman. Ah! <laughs> Wait, the lights just went out. Be my victim. What's up, Tony Todd? He's so creepy in that movie. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It didn't make my top ten. The only reason it didn't make my top ten is that it doesn't hold up as much as it, as much as these other ones do uh, to me, or they don't have the special place in my heart like the other ones do. But Candyman is up there. And when I was a kid, we used to do that to people, and I got my friend Mike Ottlinger, who I'm pretty sure I screwed up for life by doing this. He eventually became a minister, uh, got married, got divorced, and then joined the Navy at the age of 33. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that it's all because when we were 12 years old, we watched Candyman. We dared him to do Candyman in the bathroom by himself. 
he did it, and we had a signal that when I flicked uh, my when I slammed my foot on the ground, that my buddy Tony would hit all the fuses in the house. Are you? Wow. Yeah. So he he says Candyman for the fifth time. I slam my foot. Tony shuts off the power to the house, and Mike Ottlinger screamed bloody murder for a significant amount of time. Like end of the point. Time would be like what five minutes? Yeah, like five minutes, and then like wouldn't stop crying, and his, eventually his parents had to come take him home. Wow! Because we had just scared him that badly. And yeah, I don't feel bad about with, it. Um, Ouija boards with me? Oh, I love playing with Ouija boards. Nothing would make me happier than taking a Ouija board to a haunted house. Like mm-hmm. one of the, mm-hmm. like that place you're talking about in Mantino. Like we can do that, yeah. but I have to be able to bring a Ouija board. Because that's well, actually my favorite. Like you went back to Paranormal Activity for number two. My favorite yeah. thing in Paranormal Activity is when they leave the Ouija I think it's the second one. They leave the Ouija board on the table and it just spontaneously bursts into fire. That was the first one. Is that the first one? I love that. Yeah. That's such a great little thing. No, I even remember covering my eyes when they did when they had it out. Okay. Because I'm like I'm like I'm like this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. I love <laughs> I Ouija boards. This is a movie, but this is a bad idea. <laughs> I disagree entirely, sir. In fact, I think we should do the thing where you paint the letters onto the floor of the no. actual property, so you can just do it itself. No. All right, so your number one is the ring, the Japanese version of the ring. Though the American version is not bad, uh, it's, it's not nearly as scary. It's very Americanized, but it's still a pretty decent uh, adaptation of that story. Right. Uh, all right. Now I told you that my number two was Alien, and fourteen oh eight was my number three. Here's where your my number one will anger you, and I imagine we'll have ten minutes on this just because of what I'm about to say to you. My number one. It better not be Space Odyssey 2001. It's not a Space Odyssey 2001. That's not even that good a movie to begin with. It's very dull, that movie. It's it's, it's very well made, very dull story. And I'm still not entirely sure what it's actually about. Um, but my number one favorite horror movie of all time. Is Independence Day? No. It is worse than Independence Day, as far as most people will be considered. It is A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 6, Freddy's Dead. Nick, we talked about (laughs) this. Here's why. And it's not just the... Okay. I, last night, went to my friend Laura's house to work on some stuff for the podcast. Also, when we hang out, if we have nothing else to watch, no shows, no nothing, my friends and I will watch... Scary movies. And the reason we watch scary movies is because it's a great social thing. People get scared, whatever. But, and this is the thing with this. Scary movies to me are best when shared with a group. They're the most fun. And I think you'll agree that as much as a good horror movie can terrify you, a bad horror movie can be just as entertaining. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Freddy Six somehow manages to be the best Freddy movie and the worst Freddy movie at the same time. And I have no idea how you pull that off except to say watch Freddy 6. It is the ultimate evolution of five previous movies building a universe for this one character. 
It gives him his final send-off in that universe. It ties all of the other movies together. And as a fan of the Freddy franchise, it does a lot for that. But it also comes down to this basic tenet of Freddy Krueger. Do you know what that is? Mm. Jason is silent. Michael Myers is silent. Leatherface is silent. Freddy Krueger just really enjoys killing people and has a good time doing it. And as those movies went on, the kills got so elaborate and so over the top that they became comedic. And by the time you get to the sixth Freddy, he kills a person, this is not in order, with a video game, a school bus, a bed of nails, and I shit you not, a Nintendo Power Glove. (laughs) Including the line... Freddy, get him out of the video game. They pull the controller out of the game that's controlling the kid. It's all elaborate. And Freddy has the line, You forgot the power glove! And then uses his glove, his Freddy glove, as a Nintendo power glove to control one of the teenagers in a video game where his father is beating him to death with a tennis racket. The father eventually, like the video game version of the father, kills the kid. Freddy looks right at the camera and goes, Whoa! I got a new high score. It's funny. It is my sister and I. It's our favorite Freddy movie. It's Freddy at his best. It's Robert Englund at his very, very best. Creepy, but funny. There's all that weird Freddy sexual tension, rapist stuff that goes into it. It is, in my opinion, the best movie you can watch on Halloween. Because it has some fun kills it has a iconic character but it knows exactly what it is and isn't afraid to be funny see i guess and you said it earlier <clears throat> it's a franchise right right now i had emmyville horror which was also also a franchise right right but i just saw the one and i was good you know and i guess that's where my problem with the Friday the 13th movies and Freddy Krueger movies is that when do you end a story like that? You know, because for me, a horror movie, it's fine to have a trilogy. It might be okay to have four and five, you know, but there has to, I feel it has to be some sort of coherent story. Because it just seemed like, the oh, but there is there is a there is a coherent story in the Freddy franchise. If you exclude one and two, because Freddy one is it's kind of its own thing. Freddy two is a very different movie than the rest of the franchise. That's what I'm saying. So the first one was a, was a movie by itself, right? You know, but it has but a cliffhanger ending. Made two, then they started veering off into a franchise. You know, but if you watch the franchise. They bring back the main character of the first movie in the third movie. Nancy is in Freddy in Nightmare 3. And she comes back from the first movie in Nightmare 3, and then they start to build a mythology. It's the third one where you find out that Freddy is the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. Like, there's all this stuff that goes into it that as the movies go on, they keep expanding his story. But the fifth one, he's 
been defeated in the fourth one. So how does he get his power back? He possesses a, an infant inside the womb who's dreaming all the time because babies dream all the time. Right. So he that's how he starts to get his way back. Freddy Six takes all of those ideas, t- treats them, because that's my thing with a universe, with a franchise, with a universe, whatever you want to call it. If you're going to have that, then commit to it. Be part of it. And Freddy Six, for all of its problems, embraces every bit of Freddy uh, narrative. They're all legitimate. They're all treated with like that they really happened. But the most important thing about Freddy Six is this. It closes the story in a way that if you watch those six movies, you never have to watch another one. Now, he comes back in other forms and other stuff later on in, in a remake in arguably the best Freddy movie, which is uh, A New Nightmare, which is... Uh, you've seen that one, right? Yeah. That one is a, is a, is a tour-de-force horror movie by Wes Craven. I mean, that, that movie is meta and great, and I love the idea that Freddy's a fictional character, but he's, but he's really keeping a, an actual demon trapped in Freddy form. Like, that whole deal, like, I love that movie. Uh, but Freddy 6 has a special place because it is my sister and I's favorite movie to watch around Halloween together. Uh, if she comes over to my house for Halloween, we're going to put on Freddy 6 because it is just such a fun little movie that just allows itself to be what it is. Is that and it and I and I just love Robert England as Freddy. So if you were to say what's my number one movie to watch on Halloween, it's Nightmare on Elm Street Six because it's just so over the top. I get that. I know I get what you're saying with that and everything. You know, but I guess this is the same conflict I have with not just Freddy Krueger or Jason franchises, but like The Simpsons, Family Guy, Doctor Who. When is enough and, enough? Exactly, because I mean, a, I mean, you can tell a story from now to the end of time, right? But there's, but when you, you can't keep Bart as a teenager for that amount of seasons. You know, Stewie can't be a baby for that amount of seasons. Doctor Who. Really? Because I would argue that the millions of people who continue to watch would disagree with you. I know they would, and I know they would, and, and they have very good reason to, you know, and they're very valid, but there's still, you know, enough's enough at, at some point. Yeah, you know? I, I see what you're saying, you know, and that and that is true for some people, but for me personally, I, I'm the person who says when they're telling me they're going to make a Pirates of the Caribbean 5, and people go, oh, do we really need another Pirates movie? And I go, yeah. I love the first one, and it doesn't have to be as good as the first one, but it's 100% more movie, and I like these characters, and I like this world, and the more time I get to spend there, whatever. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be time in between them, maybe, because Hartness, is, you know, I, I would argue that the Star Trek is a great example of that. There's never been a long period of time without Star Trek, right? So no one's ever really missed it. Star Wars hasn't had a new movie since 2005, and before that it was 25 years. Now we have this absence makes the heart grow fonder since Han Solo's done it, or been in a movie, and now you're, you've got that fever pitch going. I, I like franchises. Me, personally, I can't get enough of them. I think that there should be a new you know, Marvel movie every month. I'm just that person. I, I'm all for as much storytelling as possible. Some are going to hit, some aren't. You know, and like I said, Freddy is also a ter- Freddy 6 is also a terrible movie, and I like bad horror movies. I love them. Freddy 6 features a cameo from Tom Arnold and Roseanne. Right. 
There's a cameo by Johnny Depp in a, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Like, there are cameos and weird celebrity things in that movie. At the same time, though, it's a fun ride. And you watch it, and it kind of closes out this series. And at the end of the day, Freddie really likes his work. He really enjoys what he does. But let's put it into real life, okay? Okay. Like, like a franchise ask. There's you can you can see the Rolling Stones so many times in concert. Yeah, but the Rolling Stones are going to play the same twenty songs every time you see them in concert. When I see a new Freddie movie, I'm going to see a new and inventive way to kill somebody. Nobody yeah, and, 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 that, and I mean I mean there's a flaw in that argument. I understand that. However. Uh, it's the same thing that happened in the fifties. <laughs> it's the same guys, you know. And yeah, they're gonna play the same songs, if not some newer stuff or covers of other songs it, through their own tone. But you know, it's gotta end at some point. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I can see your your argument on that, but to me, I I, I listen. Freddie, let me let me just give this to you. Why I love Freddie so much, man. Before we get out of here for the day, because we've already done two hours on this almost. Here's the thing: Freddie has killed people in the following very inventive ways. Number one, he sucked Johnny Depp into a hell pit in his bed and then shot the blood up, which was so much more blood than Johnny Depp could ever generate. He's drowned a person in a waterbed by having them get sucked through the waterbed by a beautiful naked blonde woman who then pulls him into the waterbed and drowns him. He cut the tendons out of a girl's foot, walked her like a puppet to the top of a building, cut the puppet strings and let the person fall to their death. Uh, the video game kill, he did the, the ear thing kill, and the greatest kill of all time in Freddy 3, when the girl who wants to be on television sees the TVs on the fritz in her dream, she goes to change the channel, and Freddy becomes the TV, picks up the girl, his face is on the screen, looks at her dead in the eye, and goes, Welcome to prime time, bitch! And he slams her head into the TV, and, she's, and they find her body head first on a television, it's like four feet off, the, like six feet off the ground, and she's just hanging from it. That's a classic kill. I'll put that up against any horror movie kill of all time, up to and including the pun. I love that. It makes me laugh and be revolted and just kind of enjoy it, and it allows me to just have fun. And that's what I think most important to me. Being scared by a horror movie is not the most important thing. It's having fun watching it. Because it's not an Oscar kind of thing. It's not a tour de force. It's just a movie. And every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with just having fun with a movie. That's right. So that's what I would say. I wanted to give you this, by the way. So uh, before we get out of here, ladies and gentlemen, just to let you know, these are the top five uh, horror movies according to Rotten Tomatoes, and it's very disappointing. Number five, The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, starring Boris Karloff. Number four, King Kong, 1933, which I don't even know if you really qualify that as horror. Repulsion, 1965, Roman Polanski film. So, you know, it's nice and safe to watch. Number two, right there with you, they've got Nosferatu, 1922. And the number one movie of all time, according to uh, Rotten Tomatoes, is the 1920 Doctor, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Now, 
I would argue with all of those being in the top five, but that's because, you know, movie people are movie people. However, if you really want to have fun this Halloween, folks, what's really important is if you're going to watch scary movies, don't watch them alone. Not because you'll get scared, but because you'll have so much fun watching them with other people. Would you at least agree with that, AJ? I do agree with that. All right. Other than that, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's special Halloween top 10 horror movies of AJ and Nick here on Out Front. AJ, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, people. Other than that, folks, I hope you had fun. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, We've got a website. We've got all sorts of fun things for you. Again, this has been the Halloween Countdown Show. I am Nick Serranos, joined by AJ Signeri. This has been Out Front, hosted here on the Chicago Podcast Network. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, have a happy and spooky Halloween. May you see a real ghost. We out! This has been a production of the Chicago Podcast Network theme music provided by the Free Music Archive, Morning Blue by Josh Woodward. That's Josh Woodward on the Free Music Archive. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Gmail. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.